welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick minute to tell you something that I'm really excited about. I've recently teamed up with Hitched Inc., one of the biggest and fastest growing tech startups in oil and gas. You've probably seen them all over LinkedIn. From generators to light towers, pumps to forklifts, use Hitch to pair your company with reliable rental suppliers and eliminate the hassle of logistics through the use of an in-app platform. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to schedule a demo. All right, well, welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Ezra North, Director, Global Strategic Account Manager at Gyrodata. I like how you have strategic in the title. What does that mean exactly? Like you hear about account managers, but what is strategic? Like, Yeah, so I think strategy is not a big component of oil and gas these days. I think we're so tactical and caught up in the topsy-turvy results of a downturn, which pretty much coming out of 2014, I don't think there's been much strategic going on, especially in services. But okay. for me, for us, it's it's really those accounts that... You figure if you're if you're juggling a lot of things and you've got a few of them are glass balls, the things you cannot drop, those are strategic accounts. So those okay. are the ones that are, you know, the lifeblood of the company. Sure. And I kind of comically asked it, but I thought it was important because looking at your history, you've obviously got a lot of experience. So I figured there was a method to the madness there. But anyways, before we get going, let's take a quick break. If you like coffee and want to hang out with me for a half hour, you probably do, or maybe you don't. If you live here in Houston, leave a review, send me a message letting me know that you left a review and I'll buy you a coffee. If not, that's cool too. I'm extremely grateful that you've been listening. So Ezra, we've met actually face-to-face at the AAD casino night. We'd you know done a little bit of correspondence lining up the podcast, but yeah, so it was kind of neat to kind of get to know you and met your wife and just a cool couple. How was casino night for you guys? Yeah, no, it was great. And yeah. actually, I think our wives hit it off better than we did. They uh, did. <laughs> which they, is even better. It, so it we'll, is. That means we'll probably see each other again. Most definitely. No, uh, she's a sweetheart. And remind <laughs> me of your wife's name again? Uh, Janixa. That's right. No, yeah, uh, yeah her, so my wife named Nicole. And yeah, they both hit it off and they're babbling away. So yeah. uh, it's always neat to go to casino night and get to meet the wives. And yeah, just some great friendships get made along the way. So no, that was certainly a good time. And a big shout out to AADE. They do a lot of events. And if you're not an AADE member, I encourage you to sign up or at least look at the website and see some of the cool events that they have going on. But more importantly, thanks for coming on to the show. Have you ever been on a podcast before? No. I was, okay. I was mentioning to you, I haven't done a podcast. Okay. Uh, the the only other things I've done are this show, this 48 hours I was telling you about. Okay. So this is an oil <clears throat> so and gas. got a camera on it. And, yeah. Uh, so no camera is a good thing. So me. this is an oil and gas podcast. But when you mentioned that, I was like, you got to tell a little bit about it. So would you mind telling us about how you ended up on 48 hours? Yeah. So, well, it's a bizarre story. So you won't believe me. So you can watch the the show on 48 hours. But my uncle lived on a sailboat and basically sailed the Caribbean for 20 years or so and was a good friend. And he disappeared. He was in Panama off of the off the Caribbean coast. And there's about 360 islands there. It's controlled by the Kuna Indians. So it's almost an Indian territory in Panama. Right. And he lived there on a sailboat and yeah, he just disappeared. We, he stopped text messaging and everything and 
I just became concerned and I got in touch with the State Department and kind of went through the normal routes and realized that they were just not going to support me kind of trying to figure out what happened. Yeah. I was pretty much worried that either the boat had been damaged or something like that. And then a lot of his friends and other people on the boat, the boating network is really tight, okay. tighter than the oil field even. So they all communicate all the time and right. either by radio, shortwave, cell phone, whatever. So they, they basically contacted me and said that I need to get a hold of this guy in Panama, an American guy, retired Air Force intelligence guy. So I call him and uh, I said, look, I'm really concerned. I don't think anything's being done. I'm worried maybe his boat sank. He's stuck on one of these islands, et cetera. Right. And he said, look, you need to go to Panama and you need to report your uncle missing to the Panamanian authorities because they really don't care if you report it to the U.S. government. Wow. So I got on a plane the next day and flew to Panama City and met this gentleman, amazing guy. And we basically went straight to the police department and he had helped the police solve another a murder a serial killer there called Wild Bill the year before, coincidentally. Yeah, okay. a real sick guy too. Wow. Um, so he was really tight with the police there. They all got promotions and everything. So he walked me in there and said, hey, his uncle's missing. We need to do something about this. Let's help find him. The guys literally drop what they're doing. These are like militario type, some badass guys. Anyway, wow. so we went on this search and it soon becomes apparent that probably something bad's happened. We found my uncle's boat. It was like anchored on an island that you would never put a sailboat. It was getting beat up against the beach. The name had been scratched off on the back. And there's a long story. You can watch the show. But basically, it turned out this guy's name kept coming up. And so long story short, we've chased, we kind of chased the trail with the military for about three days. I went on national TV, which in Panama, it's like your small town, America, you know, everyone turns on the local news. Yeah. So I go on there and in Spanish say, you know, my uncle's missing. I've been looking for him. I'm pretty sure this guy has something to do with it. Put a picture of this guy up. It was Valentine's Day. Okay. And he, that night they aired it. And then right away, a lady running a little hotel on the border of and the Darien Gap, which is the border between Panama and Colombia. It's impenetrable jungle. It's a little sliver at the bottom of Central America. He was checked into the, her hotel in my uncle's name with my uncle's passport. She calls it in and the military comes in and gets him. He had my uncle's pistol, uncle's everything and had his pistol his, and he had two horses and he was getting ready to go into the impenetrable jungle and disappear. Wow. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to sure. the story, yeah. but you know, never, never found my uncle. Wow! But he had also murdered another guy the same week. He basically was trying to steal boats, and he was in this business of hauling, ferrying backpackers between Panama and Colombia. Okay. And his boat had sunk. My uncle had helped him when his boat sunk. That's how he got to know my uncle. And basic straight up sociopath, the guy was like, oh, well, I'll just kill him and get his boat. And then this, there was a French guy who had a bigger boat that I think he decided he'd rather the bigger boat. He tied the French guy to an anchor and he was found by some scuba divers that were doing a, just recreational diving. So probably God. same thing happened there. Then a few months later, when I got back to the States, this CBS reached out and said, hey, we were 
we heard about this story because it was covered. The guy who helped me also had a local blog to kind of keep people up to date on what goes on in Panama. Yeah. And so everyone was following this kind of crazy journey. And then they said, well, why don't, would you mind doing this show? Which I said, hell no. So why would you uh, say that right away? Well, the initial, why would, I don't know. I'm not like, and I'm, I'm just extrovert. curious. Like yeah. I wasn't dying to go on national TV okay. and weep tears about my lost uncle. Yeah, no, and, and that speaks a lot about your character. And that's yeah. the reason I'm asking. Because a lot of people, depending, it doesn't matter about the situation, any opportunity to gain that little bit of fame, they would have taken on. And then, so that's why I was asking. Uh, but that's, that's, that's humble of you to be like, no, like I don't need the publicity. Like, you know, the intent for me doing what I did is for the love of my family. So, yeah, yeah. And to get, yeah, absolutely. To find out what happened. I mean, of the course. guy would have disappeared. Yeah, so if I hadn't gone down there, but talked about it with the family and was like, well, there's a lot of loose ends because I basically we caught the guy. I went back, came back to work and I never got on my uncle's boat. We never got to salvage anything. There's actually a when I do go back down, there's a scene you'll see where I find a gyrodata hat that I gave him. No uh, way. That's covered in mildew. It was the worst thing ever going on a boat that had been yeah. stopped in the Caribbean sun for it was about four months by that time. So everything was mildewed and the boat was sinking. And But anyway, CBS flew me back down there. They brought, I guess their crew is like 60 Minutes guys. They're It's top-notch wow. people, amazing people. Like they had just been in Haiti covering the, the earthquake there at the time. That was, was 2010. Yeah. And then they were at the Royal Wedding and then they were in, at the Bali Tsunami. Interesting groups. And they brought multiple cases of wine. Okay a Thai chef and they chartered a yacht because there's no resources out there where we where my uncle was living where he disappeared so wow it was definitely a bizarre scenario sure uh, the problem was was we'd drink and eat and i was definitely emotional in the of morning course. and then in the morning they'd knock on the cabin and say okay time to film Jeez. so you're like completely hung over an emotional wreck and so that's why again i'm glad we're not on camera right now right i'm well, not hung over i got up and ran this morning so. well no, thank it's, you for it, it's one of those things yeah i mean you never know what happens right so. yeah no i commend you for for taking that initiative to getting to the bottom of something like that that says a lot about you and sorry about your loss obviously that's I couldn't imagine. I've had some close family members pass and it's never easy. And actually my father, he passed away in Mexico. He was living down there and my parents had split up and yeah, one night all of a sudden he couldn't breathe and, you know, went to the hospital, passed away. And my mom, they were split up, but she still loved him. And, you know, there was, they still had connection and she felt like there was some, you know, wrongful doing. She, he was living with, with a Mexican lady who was supposedly taking care of her, but not understanding sort of the medical, the history leading up to it, because it was there was just a lot of loose ends and there were a lot of gray area. And so my mom for years tried to figure out more what happened, but it was just a convoluted mess. And we never really got to the bottom of what happened. Yeah. So uh, I can kind of identify with you when, when there's that sense of, you know, unknowingly what happened. Like here in the States, if something happens like that, you get a pretty solid case of you know, front to back, side to side, assuming there's enough, you know, data and, and stuff collected. But when you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's not as many resources to be able to go to and maybe, you know, there's a language barrier, I couldn't imagine how tough that would have been. But anyway, I, like I said, I commend you for doing what you did. That's amazing. So yeah, no, that I'm sorry about, oh, you went through it. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, I can yeah. tell you one thing, if you, if you count on the U.S. government to handle your international affairs, that's a mistake. Sure. You, you have to 
you have to actively participate. And yeah. It's it's risky, but it's the only way you'll try to have any hope of finding out what went on. And you yeah. know, you're on your own when you leave this country. And yeah, that's just how it is, right? I think people take that for granted. And no kidding. These first world countries, we think we're just protected everywhere we go. But Well, uh, like hopefully the listeners out there can take something away from that. But anyways, so let's switch gears here a little bit. Oil field. So you started back in 2000, right? May of 2000, yep. according yep, to May. LinkedIn, right mm, after May Y2K. Yep, okay. Yep. You know, it's funny. I was talking about dates with someone not too long ago, and there's all there's certain dates that some folks remember. I remember the first day I went on a drilling rig, which was August 18th, 2004. That's the right. first time I started with precision drilling. And I even tell my wife this. Sometimes I forget certain dates that I should remember, like my kids' <laughs> birthdays, my wife's birthday, and my mom's birthday. But for some reason, I, imagine, I remember the first day I went on a drilling rig. But yeah, so back in 2000, and what was life like in the 80s and 90s? for Ezra. I mean, you obviously, you know, there's yeah. something before then. What, where'd you grow up and what, you know, yeah. what does that look like? Yeah. I don't know. The eighties, man. I'm glad to say <laughs> like I was a teenager in the eighties. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> where'd you grow yeah. up? Between, so families from New Orleans and they were divorced. So we were half in New Orleans. Unfortunately, we got the bad deal. We got the summers and the heat in New Orleans and the winters in Virginia where my mom ended up staying. Okay. Very rural in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So kind of half and half. Eventually, they gave up on me trying to go to the public schools in either New Orleans or Virginia. And I ended up two years in boarding school okay. at the Asheville School. Wonderful place. And that pretty much transformed my focus towards learning. And certainly math and science is a big part of it. And when the time came to figure out where to go to university, this is in Asheville, North Carolina. Someone said, man, you told my mom your son would really like Texas. So being from Louisiana, we back then, like no one really went to Texas if you're from Louisiana. At least okay. My family in New Orleans, we did. And I'd never been to Texas. That was a whole nother world to yeah. you guys. And they said, well, you know, Austin's a lot like New Orleans. There's live music. It's an amazing place. Yeah. So I just applied, never even went and looked at the school. It was an easy application, UT. I don't know if it still is, but basically if you're in the top 10% of your class and you get whatever on the SAT, you're automatically in. And Okay. So I went to Texas. Nice. Yeah. And uh, I'd never been there before. It's amazing. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for you. No, I, I know a lot of folks, especially here in Houston, engineers that had went to UT and, and they all loved it. I mean, down here, I'm Canadian, but you know, down here, there's so much allegiance to whatever your school you went to. So do you go to all the football games and are you part of the alumni and like all in with the whole thing or what? Yeah. Well, so clearly not growing up with that culture or even history of, of the school yeah. I didn't know what an Aggie was. <laughs> okay. And thank God I didn't because, you know, I, yeah, I didn't even know what a Sooner was. I learned that, you know, not to, you know, like the Sooners, although I have some friends in Oklahoma I love. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I didn't even understand what an Aggie was until later I got in the oil field. And of course, there's a lot of my friend Aggies out there. Hello, everyone. Right. They started calling me this tea sipper and the name calling. <laughs> yeah. so I would say the association with the rivalry, the school pride in terms of athletics and everything kind of came after. Okay. I would say the university years were Certainly, I, I studied chemical engineering, so there's plenty of studies going on. Yeah. But it was just enjoying being in college and, you know, being in Austin at a time that will never be the same again. This was 91. I went into school there. Okay. Austin is forever transformed. Okay. Was it like nowadays everyone like, oh, keep Austin weird. It's kind of got this libertarian sort of like, you know, it's got a mashup of everything. Was it like it back then? Or Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know, the I keep Austin weird seemed to be 
bumper sticker back then too but okay it, so it's it always had probably that. actually was weird then okay maybe more than now <laughs> i don't there's i mean it's there's business there dell started it when i was living there and then samsung and this is night in the early 90s for sure so it's always been so a that's tech hub. blossomed starting kind of i guess in the early 90s when really dell's what michael dell started yeah but it was much more of a smaller city for sure and the college was more of a centerpiece to it now you go there and i mean there's there's a lot of business there a lot of companies oh yeah so it's just kind of changed i would say probably the theme to keep it weird is probably prevalent (laughs) yeah and yeah it's always been i guess the liberal seat of texas sure no it's i I don't know i don't i don't study the political side much yeah it's just a great place to live at that when you're that age for sure you you go to barton springs you can bike everywhere you can go to an amazing school and yeah um, it's a fantastic place to go to school oh yeah big school though yeah i mean it was even fifty thousand students when i oh wow there so it's what it is now i couldn't imagine but so that leads me to ask are you ut fan are you an lsu fan are you a football fan texas all the way okay there you go well i just had to ask just in case yeah Yeah, absolutely there you go so you started off in the oil field with was it scientific back in the day no it was it was with gyro data okay it was with gyro data so how'd you get on with them so i think there's probably a lot of stories like this either you your family was in oil and gas and you were anointed to do it yeah or you know Probably my story's just as common as I worked as a chemical engineer out of school at a small a pharmaceutical kind of startup company, and we'd make, it was like a pilot plant. So we'd scale up things that this PhD would make in a lab, and we'd try to make, you know, a kilogram of it, whatever it was. Well, apparently he's a terrible businessman. I had no idea. I was just this young engineer trying to make stuff. So one day they go, "Oh, we're we're broke," <laughs> and I felt bad because I was spending lots of their money with you know, building this plant and mini plant and stuff. Yeah. Um, so at that point it was, okay, what do you do with a chemical engineering degree now? And quite frankly, it's depressing, right? In 2000, it was, it was not oil and gas still, although oil and gas was rebounding. I think part of the reason I wasn't in oil and gas in university is it was completely dead in 91. Yeah. There was, it just wasn't an option. I wish I'd known. Certainly I'd rather have studied drilling engineering than chemical engineering. Chemistry is not easy, but sure. So I went back to New Orleans and was looking at job opportunities. And a friend of my dad said, hey, there's this guy I fish with. And he's like, got this cool job. All he does is like, he fishes all the time. <laughs> he just carries his pager around. And whenever it goes off, you know, they just go offshore and do this job. And, you know, it sounds awesome. Yeah. So you ought to meet the guy. So I meet the guy. I'll call him the shadow. Okay. He's still out there. I haven't seen the shadow in a while. but. Okay. <laughs> The shadow interviews me and they're like, wow, you got like an engineering degree? Like, <laughs> Rocket you science. Sure you're like, you sure you want to do this? And I'm thinking, yeah, this is great. You know, right. It sounds pretty cool. There's no <laughs> office. So sign up. In those days, they didn't have a lot of orientations and safety and training. You know, I didn't experience any of that. They told me to go get some boots and go meet them at the dock in Fushan. And yeah. Oh, good old Fushan. Or Fushan. Yeah. And so went on my first rig. I don't remember the date of that one, but I remember being horrified. It was a <laughs> it was a shell platform that was one of the older ones in the Gulf of Mexico. And so you're okay. being, you're on the crane basket. Which yes. Is the man, the old horrifying. man basket. <clears throat> yeah. After a boat ride. And so you're just going through deck of deck of production and lights and noise and generators and 
eventually you get to the drill floor and yeah, so. Probably, I would say easily the hardest year of my life and potentially the most miserable. Why is that? The pager never stopped going on. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. exactly how it was described to you when your buddy was telling you that? Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of fishing going on. <laughs> Actually, I, I missed every barbecue, every family event, every right. birthday. My girlfriend of five years left me within six months into it. <laughs> she wasn't I came it. home from the rig and there was the Dear John note. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it just, but that's just part of it, right? So, uh, I, yes, <laughs> it's funny because here we are. This was so by 2001, a year into it, almost a year, 19 years ago to the day, we were finishing on, I remember it was like BP Amberjack. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. I've had my fill of the oil field. Right. And then I think part of it is because gyrodata is not always a planned service okay. it's typically there could be an emergency or an mwd failed or in those days mwd failed all the time it wasn't like what we do today which is incredible yeah so you just drop the gyro well they never have room for you on the rig they never have a chopper for you you're like forgotten and then you know they need you and then it's a rush to get you out there so logistics are not planned you're not on a rotation you're not doing mwd or directional where it's two weeks on two weeks off it's just constant yeah. So I'd be on a drill ship one day, they'd fly me in, and then I'd be on a land rig in East Texas, and then a barge, and then a jackup, and then... So you see a lot, I mean a lot, in just a month, you see, you know, I've probably seen more rigs than anyone in, in a, just a year, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just really hard. I mean, there's no sleep, there's really just nothing but getting home, doing, waiting, and then the pager goes off to your next job. So it was the Saturday before Fat Tuesday... I'm coming off BP Amberjack, and I think I was out there with the Shadow, who they also call Gyro No Data. Uh, on the <laughs> Hopefully he and hears the, this, yeah, the or she. I, yeah, I hope Mike hears it. But the, the, <laughs> the technology was still evolving then, and it was still groundbreaking. So it was, it was, they needed us, and when they needed us, they were patient. But it was still, you know, a lot of times where you didn't get data. Right. So not to cut you off, but give the listeners a 30,000 foot view of what it was. Like, what were you doing when you went to these jobs? Okay. Yeah. So really, I didn't know it in context at the time, but we were just fully coming into the market with a drop gyro. So this was groundbreaking because now you had a gyro tool that you could make up with a battery pack and drop it inside the drill pipe, and we figured out a way to control the descent. The gyro is incredibly fragile, incredibly accurate, but incredibly fragile, yeah. especially back then. So the fact that you could drop the gyro meant that if the MWD failed, you didn't have to come out of the hole and try to change everything out. You could just fly me out from my barbecue, and, <laughs> yeah. and you drop it, and you collect the survey data that you needed without taking all the time to trip out of the hole, and you didn't need non-mag because the gyro doesn't react to or get interference from steel or magnetic interference. So gotcha. the drop gyro was revolutionary at that time. Now that's common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I fly in Saturday for Mardi Gras, take the pager, threw it in the drawer, and it was pagers yeah. at that time, and just had a great Mardi Gras. So Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday, which was last week, yeah. uh, 19 years ago, I very hungover go and pull the pager out and it's like you know blowing up <laughs> so i call houston which houston was kind of the that still was like where the coordinators were but you never heard from them or saw them or anything like it was just kind of surreal yeah but, uh, 
So I call in. I was like, hey, man, you know, I kind of needed a job then because I was spent all my money at Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, hey, God, I'm glad you called. Do you want to go to Trinidad? We need someone to help in Trinidad. It wasn't like, dude, you let us down or anything. Right. And I'm like, all right, let's see. I've lost my girlfriend. Family <laughs> doesn't talk to me. Pretty much sick of New Orleans and Trinidad. Yeah, I think that's Sign in me the up. Caribbean. Yeah. And by the way, it's also extremely similar to New Orleans in many ways. Wow. And they're like, okay, well, get on a plane, you know, go get some stuff. So go down there. BP had just bought Amico and really had bought it for their nat- for their natural gas reserves. Amico was more of an oil producer in Trinidad. Okay. So this is the big acquisition BP made then. And it was the first LNG export in the hemisphere for many years. Oh, wow. At that time, we thought we were going to be importing natural gas to the U.S. and we're going to be completely dependent. It's strange. In 2001. Right. <laughs> Go figure. So it was booming. And yeah, so I went down there, didn't even come back for like four months, had to come back, get rid of my apartment, sell the few things I had and went back and stayed another four years. Wow. And that brought you to 2005. Okay. Wow. So what was it like like when you stepped foot in, you know, Trinidad, what was going through your mind at the time? Were you like scared, excited? Like, was it? No, I mean, it was, it was natural. Yeah. Yeah. I used to backpack a lot. So I've. So you're familiar with the unfamiliar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a traveler. So okay. I used to backpack all around the world and everything. So Okay. And yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful place. Anyone who wants to experience a pretty interesting culture, I highly recommend it. But yeah. It was also vibrant in activity. And this was kind of the pivot point in my career where instead of just waiting for the pager to go off and I, I mean, I'd show up on jobs. I had no idea what they were doing. Right. I didn't know if they were in the reservoir or drilling top hole or doing, you know, you'd kind of learn they were doing any collision and you talk to a directional drill. I started to figure it out, but I really didn't know the context of what I was doing. Yeah. Huh. There, it was, the involvement was from the planning phase on. And BP was very thorough about it. They're very structured in the way they used our services and very familiar. So it went from just kind of showing up when you're called to Lord knows where to being involved at a project level. So it was a game changer in terms of the business side. And also the cultural side was amazing too. Right. Trinidad, they have some current, like quite a bit of activity going on right now, don't they? Probably not as much as they did at okay. that time. You're never going to have more than five rigs going they're offshore. It's all mostly offshore. Mostly there is some land work. Who are the operators there? So still BP is the biggest one. Okay. And then BHP. Yep. And British Gas was big and they that's Shell now. So I would say those are the two. Those are the three big ones. EOG, believe it or not, they have, I think they, you know, they're one we all know here in North America, but yeah, yeah. they have Trinidad and China as like these odd ones. Yeah. And they'll go do a few wells or set a platform every year. They'll usually have a few wells. So they, they just finished up a drilling campaign, I think, or they are right now. Interesting. Okay. So fast forwarding to now, describe gyro data in, you know, what type of services you guys offer and, and how you bring value to the marketplace. Yeah, the it's amazing. You get to know all the various services and all the different companies and Gyrodata is, I don't know if we're 38, someone said 40, we're close to 40 years old. Mm. And if you talk to 
the founder, if you talk to Bob, he'll tell you it was a get rich quick scheme. <laughs> Didn't quite pan out that way, but getting rich quick never works out. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how to describe it when you've got such a unique offering that's absolutely critical at critical points yes. in a well, but very short points such as, you know, primarily anti-collision. So literally when there's a lot of wells around, some of them live, some of them planned, and there's magnetic interference, you still to this day can't get away from it without having a gyroscope in there. Gotcha. And the vision was always to be the best and to develop a gyro that works for downhole and to be the best at it. And Gyrodata has done that. Nice. The challenge is that, wow, how do you expand that? It's, it's still very much a niche, but one of the ways you do it is how you convey it, how you make it available. So I talked about a drop gyro, that cut wireline out of the picture, which was traditionally back in the days, it was everything went on wireline. Yeah. So to have a memory, a drop tool was a big thing. The evolution towards drilling and having a drilling tool, a gyro while drilling tool was probably the greatest change for our business that there ever will be. Okay. How would you, for people who maybe aren't quite as familiar with, on the technical side, what is that like what are the deliverables for something like that like what does that allow us to do yeah so jennifer's here she's supposed to be working on a, a one-page slide that tells a layman what a gyro is because well I, when she's done doing send me the link Basi yeah <laughs> basically you've got okay below ground you don't have gps of course so you're really relying upon measurements from a some device and you got two options you've got a magnetometer a magnetic tool like a compass and it works it's proven but obviously there's tons of issues with magnetics magnetic poles shift and their solar flares and there's five thousand reasons that it's not a great measurement because the reference is not great magnetic right. north is just not as ideal the gyroscope it comes from military technology it's a spin. It traditionally was a spinning mass and it finds true north. It references true north, which is the exact top of the world. Mm. And then it can give you your azimuth, your direction from that. Right. So you've got two options when you're around a lot of casing, when you're drilling around other wells. So directional drilling, you need to get direction. And so you use the gyroscope basically to say you're going north, south, east, west, which way are you pointing? And then how are you oriented? So if you want to orient your motor or bent housing. Right. Does that fairly well describe it? So so we're so, giving yeah. you know directional measurement. So how does that theory change for the flat earthers out there? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. That's a good one. You, well, you wouldn't need, you definitely wouldn't need any measurements because you, you're just never going to stop going. It's just, right. You know, that'd be, be the longest lateral ever, right? <laughs> Sorry, I had, to, I had to say that. But so, no, that that's interesting. And thanks for clearing that up. No, that, that's a great description. What would you say? Would you say that's the biggest advancement that you've seen within that world is, is being able to make that transition? Yeah, definitely going from relying on wireline to have something that you can use the MWD or the mud pulse telemetry, mm -hmm. whether it's mud pulse or EM or wired pipe, to be able to have a gyro that can withstand the drilling, real-time drilling vibrations, shock and vibe, and to accurately give this directional information, which is, by the way, critical because you're talking about either hitting a well or not hitting a well. Yeah. And so you have to have that level of precision and accuracy. To do that while drilling was a game changer because it used to be you drill a little bit, run in the hole, check the shot, 
come out, drill a little bit. So you eliminated all that. So, right. So that was a game changer. Right. So ultimately saving time, which then equals money and improving the, the amount of quality data that you're probably receiving is, has been extremely important. How does AI and machine learning play a part in what you do? Well, so I think we're all trying to figure out what Internet of Things is at the right time <laughs> yeah. in the cloud. Right. I had a conversation with someone about doing well planning and, and creating your, your survey database on the cloud. And it kind of got a lot of things going in my mind. So there's so many areas that you can touch and you have to figure out what does it look like. Obviously, it's a creative exercise, too. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's pretty much the ability to provide loads of data that otherwise we wouldn't have communicated. So typically, we'll give our information... And 90 foot intervals, okay. which is a, the length of a stand, mm-hmm. not coincidentally. Sometimes you're on quads, it's it's longer, it's four stands or four strings of pipe. Four, str- or, or four joints. <laughs> joints of pipe. Four yeah. joints in a stand on, on drill ships. But <laughs> yes. so now both the improvements in in memory chips in our memory tools and then just data transmission, we record, we can record it literally inches. Okay. So instead of every 90 feet, we can give it every five inches or six inches. So it's more real time? Oh, we do that real time as well. But even in memory, so you know, when we, when we go inside a well and we record a survey, I got which you. is a directional measurement, now instead of giving you data points every 90 feet or 100 feet or whatever, we can give it to you every six inches. So what does that mean? Well, there's a lot to it. We can now use it to calculate tortuosity. We can improve calculations. Most calculations, all calculations improve by having more measurements. Of course. So that's the foundation of artificial intelligence is you've got to have mass, in my opinion, you've got to have massive amounts of data that you and I otherwise wouldn't even process ourselves. Right. But I think the first step is for us to be able to feed the feed the cloud or the animal or whatever it is that soaks all this up and what we see is it evolves into we work a lot in the artificial lift realm right that's not traditionally where we've been and we can actually show tortuosity in a well where people think about dog leg oh there's a kink in the well and that's not good well true but multiple small kinks in certain positions and orientations create tortuosity and that's kind of a better way to look at your well bore well you really can't see that unless you get a lot of cal- a lot of data, a lot of measurements. Right. No, that's interesting. You mentioned tortuosity. Actually, one of my customers is they're one of the majors, and I got to sit in on. There was a gentleman from A and M that was interning, and his final project for them was a presentation on tortuosity. And so he tied into, and they invited me to sit along for the presentation, which was nice. It was a good learning opportunity for me as well. And how they were tying into the d- degrees of tortuosity on how that actually affected completions. I can't really get into detail because a lot of it was over my head on the engineering side, but certainly it was something that they were looking into very, you know, very diligently to, to understand the relationship there. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah. A completion, it definitely applies there. It applies really, and we'll, you can see it on our website, but drilling completions and production all have reasons to care about tortuosity. Most definitely. Whether you're putting an ESP in at the end in the production side or rod guide placement but in completions you know we get these calls Jardy gets a lot of the oh crap calls we don't know <laughs> where we are or we may have hit something or you know kind of interesting stuff but no kidding sticking perforating guns plugging perf strings you want to have one that's 200 feet long or whatever well if you have in a tortuous well 
you may think, oh, it's just a small ID going through a big casing. That thing will stick and you will have a whole world of hurt. It happens all the time. So what can we do? Well, we can at least show you where you might have these issues. Wow. So it's still post well. But yeah, there, there's a lot to it. We're still kind of uncovering more applications. Oh, I'm sure. With that, yeah. Yeah. So what would you say, the, like, what does the future look like at Gyro Data? What, what can, you know, you got any things coming down the pipeline or what can the market look forward to? Right. So yeah, the future is here. The new sensor package. So the greatest development we've had and really is the game changer. And that's going from a spinning mass to a solid state gyro. And if you check our website out, there's a lot of explanation about it. But this allows us to basically move from what literally is a mechanical measurement tool, which you can imagine all the intricacies associated with that, to what is more or less a chip and the simplification of that. So from a quality control perspective, much simplified. From a reliability perspective, much improved. Hmm. It's much faster. Eventually, it will give us the ability to manufacture much more and much more efficiently. Wow. Calibration is the essential element of a good directional measurement tool, and we pride ourselves. Sometimes you have to come by the office. Actually, I, I'd like you to come. I'll yeah, show no, you. I'd the love to check it out. Calibration stands are the, the key, right? So no matter what you have, you have to calibrate it. Yeah. And these things hold calibration for years. Wow. Whereas the mechanical one, you sometimes calibrate after every time you drill on it. So there's a lot going on with that. Good for you guys. Uh, we call it the platform really is spear. So spear is speed, precision, efficiency, accuracy, and reliability. So the spear is going to power a lot of different things. So far, we've commercialized a new drop, which I talked about the drop gyro is still part of the business. So yeah. we have a drop gyro that's using the leveraging this new technology. The neat thing is, is it's such a compact package. We've got two. So we've got two independent gyro systems now. So when we drop it, if you're like me in the field, sometimes it didn't even work because you didn't <laughs> turn it on or you didn't, you know, messed up. <laughs> this one's got two. So if one fails, the other one records. But even more importantly, because they really don't fail, you've got two independent measurements that if they both meet quality control standards, you can improve the final measurement by leveraging those two independent measurements, making an improved final measurement. Extremely accurate. By far the most accurate survey tool in the oil field. And probably wow. there ever will be. Most people aren't going to put two gyro packs. Only gyro data would, would put two <laughs> gyros in there. Cool. Two independent sensor packages. There's That would actually be like six gyros in there, but... <laughs> the next thing is, as I said, the real time is where it's at. So the GWD, the gyro wall drilling version was launched late last year. And that's what we call Quest. Okay. So that is using spear technology in a wild drilling. So in a BHA, that means we're connected to an MWD. We're, we're using mud pulse or EM or wired pipe or whatever. We're communicating the gyro measurement through the telemetry. Wow. And giving real time, which is for all these applications I described, pretty critical. It's interesting if you look around and you look at look at the, the major service companies, the big guys. Yep. If you really do your digging, you'll realize that's us. Yeah. So it's kind of a unique place to be. And I work closely with all of those guys yeah. and have a lot of respect for, for what they go through. Luckily, we're not out there duking it out. It's not easy to be a major service company right now at all. Oh, I can but, imagine. But that's us. So we're in the process of integrating the new spear into the big guys, and they may call it whatever 
we want to call it. But <laughs> right. At the end of the day, we, you know, powered by Spear, you'll still see somewhere you'll see us in there. But yeah, that's, that's, it's a game changer. It that really is, is so it's, cool. It allows us. So the, the big things right now really emanating out of Norway is, and, but it's happening here in U.S. land and everywhere else is to be, to down man. So why do we need so many people on the rig? Yeah. No, big time. <clears throat> and it's not necessarily an AI conversation yet, but clearly if you want AI to drill the well and run the rig, you need to get the people off. You need to figure out that roadmap. So for us, this is the big step in that we've got something that's stable enough, reliable enough that we can ship it out in a collar, let someone else make it up. We don't need to be there to monitor it, and we can watch it remotely as well. Yeah. So it's mandated by Statoil Equinor. Their contract states at some point during this contract term in 10 years, you will get one man on the rig. Wow. Now, I figure, I don't know. My guess is some people say, oh, it'll be a directional driller. I'm like, it's either going to be the mud logger or I think it's going to be a supply chain guy <laughs> who runs the whole directional BHA. No we'll, kidding. We'll see. Yeah, right. Take a jab. <laughs> We all love supply chain on the service side, don't yeah. we? Yeah. So the Spear platform is going to emerge in, in various different forms throughout the next couple of years. And that's a big part of what I'm doing right now is making sure that we're facilitating that. Wow. Good for you guys. No, that's exciting. And, it, and it's so neat to see companies like yourselves pushing the envelope and just con continuously evolving. Because in the landscape that we're in right now, you have to continuously provide value, efficiencies, and ways to just constantly do things better. And so it sounds like you guys are on the front line. Before we close out, I just got a couple more questions, more on the, the personal side of things. Do you have any daily habits or routines that kind of help keep you focused and, and motivated to keep, you know, just like grinding and grinding and grinding, being, you know, you're, you're traveling, you're keeping up with the latest technology, dealing with your vendors or, you know, or your customers. I mean, you got anything? Yeah. Running has been the biggest thing for the probably, let's see, three, yeah, past three, four years. Okay. I get up five, five thirty. I'm out, out the door by five forty-five. I crank out three, four, five miles. Good for you. That's it, man. That's, yeah. that's my thing. No, so. that's, uh, there's a lot to be said about getting out there and getting the blood moving, especially first thing in the morning, kind of get those endorphins going. And some people you like, it's, it's, you know, they, the big thing right now is, you know, meditation and mindfulness. Well, meditation doesn't necessarily have to be sitting with your crossed legs on a pillow, you know, with a certain, you know, your fingers off the whatever, but, but doing something that kind of gets you to unplug, clears your mind, just helps you prepare, I think is super important. And especially in the drilling side of things, it's 24 hours, you know, 365 days a year. It, oftentimes folks get burnt out because they just don't know how to unplug. They they go to bed looking at, you know, PaySon or their drilling reports. They get up. First thing they do is look at everything. And and But in order to, to maintain that, you know, sustainable level of energy, you, you need that time or that something to, to reset. And it sounds Absolutely. like that kind of gets your day going. And you know, after that, you're probably, and, and I like to say, if you win the morning, you win the day. Totally um, agree. And so, uh, absolutely. You know, I actually still sleep with the phone by my bed. I haven't been yeah. in operation since 2012. Okay. That was the first half of my, more than half of my career. Yeah. I'm in sales now. I don't even have a direct report. Okay. At this time, I think there's times when you manage a lot of people that that disconnect times even more important. Yeah, you've just got so much interaction during the day. And, you know, a leadership role is a little different when you've got that you need you really need to disconnect or you're not going to offer your best. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, but yeah, and I, I think the other routine and some of my friends in, in the business will say is, you know, you've got to actually that work life balance 
thing people talk about. Yeah. The oil field needs it too. And we're kind of the last ones and I'm 20 years at it. I'm an old, older guy at this. Sure. That's something I've been working on more as I've transitioned in this role I'm in. It's given me more space to kind of look at that. So I'll take my daughter to school a couple times a week. Good for you. Try to disconnect, maybe not in a meditative way. Sure. Although I'm down with that too. But yeah. Just working hard on that work-life balance. I think that's, it's easier said than done. So, right. You know, whatever it looks like, it may be different, but I think that's another one. Cool. Well, no, that's a great message to send out to especially the young, motivated, eager to please folks out there. But if there was something else, like if there's a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in energy is listening right now, would, would that be it? Or is there anything else that you'd like based off your experience and everything you've gone through the ups and downs? I mean, provide a little hope for the folks out there. Yeah. So, and I think I do this daily and part of this exercise, part of what you do is building your network and realizing that there's a few things that I think are apparent now that I think it's safe to say that the old oil field where you start a career and you spend your whole life and at 40 years you retire, you get a gold Rolex and a pat on the back and a nice pension. I don't think that exists much anymore and I don't know if it will come back. So I think part right. of that and that, that's been something I've had to realize is, is to understand that your career will take many different paths you'll probably have more employers than, you know, your dad or your grandpa did. Right. And for me, that was hard to, it took me a while to get my head around that thing. So I think fundamentally you have to recognize that, yeah, you're obliged to work for your employer, but you're obliged to keep your network strong yes. and to keep learning. I think we started by talking about strategy. Yeah. There's not a lot of strategic movements going on. There's not a lot of strategy in our business right now. So that makes it really hard to wake up and know why are we here? Where are we going? Hmm. What is the direction? And so you have to work to find a routine where you're weekly kind of, you're building your network, you're achieving your goals, and you have to look at it that way because it is, it's a tough time to be in our business. It is. And I probably counsel, I don't know how many people a week or a day, but I believe in it. And I think now's a good time to be in it. I was just around the world again and places like Australia where it's going the direction of Canada, yes. they're still seeing a revival in oil and gas drilling. So wow. there's no one's going to kill it. It just can't be killed right now. Yep. So it is a time to hang in there and there's just going to be a huge shortage in knowledge. Big it's, time. That's, that's given. Yep. So the ones that hang in there, I think will have a, a nice career ahead of them. Awesome. Well, those are powerful words. Appreciate you sharing that with us. All right. Well, before we close out, I just want to make a few announcements. I'd like to tell everyone about some upcoming events. Hi, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So obviously we are in uh, unprecedented times right now and have been unable to carry out our last couple of happy hours that we had scheduled for last month. We have chosen to delay them and we'll continue to update you on when exactly we will be able to have those events again. Obviously, we're following along the recommended guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization. So we're really looking forward to seeing you and we're hoping that these events are going to happen sooner rather than later. But for now, stay tuned and we will keep you posted on those dates. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to Oil & Gas Global Network. We are fortunate to already have been a virtual company before the coronavirus and all of these issues started plaguing various countries. 
and we just want to continue bringing you guys the best information and to the best of our ability, keep you informed, especially while everyone is at home or at least most more people than ever before are at home. So we just would like to thank you for continuing to tune in and continuing to listen. And we hope that everyone is staying safe and we wish everyone the best. And thanks again. Great. Thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape over the spring into summer, visit KTX Fit and Katie and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Ezra, thank you so much for your time. I know you got to run out. You're a busy man, but I certainly appreciate the conversation and hopefully we can continue down the road. And for people who are looking to learn more about gyro data, do you mind if I put the link in the show notes, the website link? No, please do. Okay, perfect. I'll do that. Hit me up on LinkedIn as well. Most definitely. Trying to post, I might post some stuff on my trip to Asia here. Yeah, you should. You should. LinkedIn's a powerful tool. So I encourage you to do so. All right, everyone. Well, thanks again for listening. And always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.